I'm going to read a verse from uh, Hebrews. I was thinking today and last night uh, about, because this is re- referenced to something similar, uh, the Olympics, where you have different running events. Uh, for example, the 100 meter, 200 meter, 400 meter, and, and so on. Then they have uh, the 100 yard dash and the 440 and so on. And then you go on to um, the medium uh, competition, which is like, I think it's like 800 meters and 1,000 meters and so on. And then after that, you come to the, the long distance. And it takes one type of training for sprints and for medium distance running. But whenever you start to go on for the long haul, the, uh, the marathons and so on, it takes a completely different type of training and it takes something within that needs to be developed to go the distance. And in Hebrews, a very familiar portion of scripture, it says, let us run with patience or endurance the race that is set before us. And then the next few words, I believe, are pivotal in that whole, uh, there's other things too, but, but it's pivotal for the Christian. And it says, looking unto Jesus. Because I believe that individually, if each of us in our own life, because we all have difficulties, we all have trouble, we all have problems, different things that we all have to deal with, you know, some now, some five years from now, on down the road. If you've been living for some time, you know that there's certain things that come your way. Some things very good, some things you look at and you say, I don't know about this. And so it's instrumental for us, very important to look unto Jesus Now, in Hebrews 2, I just want to, I I looked this, the one word was, you know, coming up in my heart, and that's the word looking, looking unto Jesus, looking unto Jesus. And the Berean Study Bible says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, fix our eyes on him. And of course, that's not a, a physical thing. That must be done by the individual, and it must be something that that flows out from within us. And that word looking is present, present tense. So there is the truth there that no matter what comes your way, no matter what it is, that the Lord can develop us in such a way. So, so here the, the, the whirlwind's swirling around. Everything's turning and you're saying, oh my goodness, what's going on here? And you know how it is in a tornado. You see pictures of a tornado and there's stuff spinning there and, and you, know, you have to watch. That's why they tell you get close to the ground because if you don't, something's going to you know, hit you, maybe take you out. And so you're in that and you say, okay, you know, Lord, what is it that I should be doing at all, if there's anything? And, and I believe that is looking unto Jesus. And the low and Nita, I looked this up in this lexicon, this word looking, and it says to acquire, you know, whatever it may be, with the, the focus upon the source. So what is the source? 
what is our source? See, Jesus. So whatever it is that for you, for me, that the Lord has today, next month, next year, whatever it may be, in our heart we must look to the source. Now this is very basic for all of us, I believe. But sometimes the very basic thing can be missed because of our tension being on other things. And so to bring it down now right here where I live, where you live, you know, we have to have in our heart this looking to him. And Vines uh, says this, to look away from one thing in order or so that you can see another thing. And that's always the way it is. You know, you get in a difficulty, you get in some circumstance that's very difficult for you. And it's so easy to, to center in on that rather than, I mean, you see it, but rather than allowing your heart to see him. Very basic. In 2 Corinthians, just uh, we're going to go to Hebrews 2 in just a minute, but 2 Corinthians, another familiar portion of Scripture, chapter 4, you know, sometimes you read <clears throat> certain things in the Bible and you say, <clears throat> how can Paul say that? Or how can this person say that? You know, haven't they gone through things in their life? And one individual that I know, you know, said to me, and, and I've heard this too, where people say, you know, I wish I was young again. I wish I was, you know, 18 or 20 again. I, I don't. I really don't. Uh, you know, it was good for its time, and now I'm fine wh where I am. And his comment was, and he's gone through many difficult things in his life, and his comment was this, that why would I want to go through some of these things again? You go through them once and you move on, which I agree with. But Paul says this in verse 17. Now remember that Paul went through more struggles than probably all of us in this church combined different things he experienced. And he calls it a light affliction. He doesn't say affliction. He calls it a light affliction. So to me, that shows me, you know, how far down the road Paul the Apostle was to go through some of the things he went through. And he says, this is a light affliction. He says, for our light affliction, and of course he uses the word our, so... Even the things we go through in life, you know, compared to what the Lord endured for some others, it's a light affliction. It says, which is but for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, and the looking here is... Means, I believe it means a centering in with our spirit on that, not the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary or temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So there's always this thing before us. It's seen everywhere in the Bible, the Old Testament, New Testament, in the life and teaching of Jesus. You see it everywhere where, where you have the contrast, you know, you have the temporary, the eternal, you have death, you have life, and so on, all the way through the scriptures. 
And for each believer, every believer in the world, every single person who is a Christian will have certain things that they will face, certain things that they will have to deal with. And in that, they must find the right way. In other words, are they going to center upon Jesus or are they going to see the temporal? As I said, this is basic teaching. But it's, it's really interesting to see this with all of us, I believe, that, that sometimes the very basic things we miss and we have to be reminded. And I, I think that's so quite a, a reason to read the scriptures. Because if we're not in the scriptures and we're not allowing the Lord to teach us something to help us, maybe today, then our minds will go. You know, they'll go to this, they'll go to that, wherever they go. And so the Lord tries to bring us back, okay, this is temporal, okay, this is eternal. And, and where is it that my heart wants to go? Well, I know my heart wants to lean toward the temporal, just like everyone else. But I do know that the Lord wants us to move towards something higher. Now, in Hebrews 2, another very familiar scripture here. Verse 7, you have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hand. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him, but now... We do not see, yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus. So once again, the writer, he, he says, we, we see Jesus. Do you see Jesus crowned with glory and honor? Do you see Jesus in your spirit high and lifted up? You know, you read the Gospels, and if you read, read them slow, and... Just take, for example, one chapter, like, for example, John 6. And you just watch how Jesus deals with the circumstances before him and, and how he's just able to move through that. And it never affects his relationship with the Father. I mean, he is so far above us. He really is. And then you see how something maybe small, so much smaller, trips us up. And, you know, we think we're something. And in the grand scheme of things, we're not. I mean, I know the Lord loves us. I know he has a purpose for our life. But I'm saying in the grand scheme of things, we are very minuscule as far as all the people in the world. And then even, even higher than that, you see Jesus above and how he has moved when he was living on this earth and how he did not fall into certain things, into sin or whatever, and he walked. And I look at that and I, I see some of the things, for example, when he dealt with the Jews, that was not a pleasant thing that he had to deal with. You know, um, he says certain things, same with Paul. 
Paul went and preached, and the Jews who were set against the gospel came against him, and then he had to continue to overcome that. So Jesus was able to walk in a way that the life of God, the Father, coming into him was able to flow out from him. And I look at that and I say, you are far above. Remember, he says, I am from above, you are from beneath. We think that just means, well, of course, I understand the context, you know. Those people were from beneath. But when we, when we become Christians and we learn some things, you know, we think that we're, now we're not from beneath. But we're, we're always beneath Jesus. We're always beneath him. He moves in a way that is far above. Now, this verse may seem not applicable, but I just want to read it. John 6, you can turn there. John 6, now this is the, the feeding of the 5,000. And you know the story how they took the loaves and Jesus blessed them and he gave them to his disciples and his disciples distributed them. And then when everybody ate, we had five loaves. And the focus many times is on the loaves. Okay, there they are, the loaves. Now, we don't know how big they were. It doesn't really matter if they're this big or this big. They're not going to feed 5,000. So you see the loaves. But I want to show you something here in verse 12, or verse 11. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and his disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish as, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, we're talking about over 5,000 people. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. So the fragments are the broken pieces that, like if we would break bread here and small pieces would fall you know, to the ground, you know, we were outside, we wouldn't even consider that, would we? We would just continue on. But Jesus doesn't want any of it, he says here, to be lost. So he's interested not just in the lows, but in the fragments or the broken pieces too. And I, I was thinking about that, and the scripture came to me about the rest of God. There remaineth yet a rest of the people of God. So that some are able to move into this, a spiritual thing, and others may not, or some may move in and out of it, or maybe we all at times move in and out of it, but nevertheless, there remains a rest to the people of God. And the Lord is interested in the fragments, and he's interested in the Christian, in other words, to bring them into the rest of God, the, the Sabbath rest the continual rest, the inner rest, that maybe whenever you're at work and something happens and there's all this turmoil going on. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I just did recently again. 
and all this stuff is going on around you, and this person's upset, and this person's upset, and this is all, you know, all this pressure comes because this has to be done now, and all this stuff, you know. Even in times like that, you know, we can have a rest in God. You know, just because we get upset doesn't mean that we're pushed out of that, but there is a a steadiness, a, a place where we are, I don't want to necessarily mean see, say, say it this way, seated with Christ, but it applies to where we are, you know, with him. And something is going on in our heart that, you know, my salvation, your salvation cannot be moved. You're in him. And in John, 1 John, turn to 1 John. 1 John 1 or 1 John 2, verse 28. And now little children abide in him. Why does John have to say that? Well, Jesus said it, but John, John here, I believe he heard the teaching, and he's repeating it to the church. He says, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him in his coming. If my heart or your heart does not condemn you, you have confidence toward God. And if you do not have confidence toward God, there is no way you can enter into his rest or be in, in rest. So, so there is in us, you know, are, are we as individuals, are we right with the Lord? Now, I might not be so to speak, right with you in your eyes, but am I right with the Lord? If in my heart I am right with the Lord, then I can have confidence toward God. So this, this is always brought down to the level of the Christian. Remember, John is speaking to believers. Are you right? You have confidence uh, before God. And then going back to Hebrews, looking unto Jesus. Is this moving in my life? Now, in Lamentations, well, let's, before we go, let's go to Psalm. Psalm 142. This is a, a contemplation of David or a prayer of David. Verse 1. I cry out to the Lord with my voice. With my voice to the Lord I make my supplication. Verse 5. I cried out to you, O Lord, and said, You are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. You are my refuge, or you are my shelter from danger. You are my portion. You are my share. So if the heart is right with the Lord, and we have confidence toward God, then he becomes what you need. I mean, he, we know he is what we need. But then he becomes what you need. He becomes your portion. Uh, he becomes, in other words, uh, your share. In other words, you can, you can share to some degree in his life, his portion, you know, who he is. In Psalm 16, another psalm of David, uh, I was looking at this 
It says, I don't know if you have a note. This Bible I use has very few notes in it. Sometimes I, I think maybe I should get a different one. <laughs> but it, it has a little note above. It tells you it's a Psalm of David or the Sons of Korah or whatever. And this one says a miktam of David. You know what that is? A miktam? That's a composition so precious that it's worthy to be engraved, in other, to, in other words, to be preserved. So they, they put this word, and I don't know how many times it's used. I've seen it uh, at least a couple times in some of the Psalms, something that should be engraved. And I, I don't know if the intent there you know, back then was actually to engrave it on you know, stone, but the truth of the matter is that the Lord wants to engrave certain things upon our hearts. And so, I don't even know what verses we'll read here. Verse 5. O Lord, you are, the, you are the portion of my inheritance. You see this with David in his life, even whenever he's running from Saul. You see this heart that is looking to Jesus. David had problems, big-time problems. And not just problems in his life per se where, okay, this or that, and then you, know, you get up, you go to work and all that. No, he had problems as far as his life could be snuffed out. Saul was after him. Saul had the resources. Saul had the men. Uh, Saul had the, the ordinance, so to speak. He tells the people, his, this, go after David, and they go out after him. And so David is in trouble. His life could, could be ended. And so you see his heart always looking to the Lord, always looking unto Jesus, always saying, Lord, you know, what, what would I, you have me to do? And then he, you know, the, the thing about uh, Saul in the cave, he could have killed him. But see, he's not looking at, Vengeance. He's not looking at Saul in an unfavorable light, even though he's trying to kill him. He, he says, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. And he just snips off a piece of his garment and his heart's, you know. Verse 5, O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night season. I have set the Lord always before me. And, and actually, if you look in Acts chapter 2, when Peter uh, preaches to the Jews and he, he tells them about you know, Jesus Christ and how they crucified him and so on. This is part of the scripture here that he actually quotes in Acts 2, uh, where I have set the Lord always before me. And so have you and I set the Lord before us? What does the word set mean? Does anyone know? It means to become like. 
I, I saw that in two different lexicons. To be like or to become like. Like who? So you see in David's life that he is very aware of who he wants to become like. And for him, remember, he, he didn't have the Lord before him physically like the disciples did. So his, his relationship was brought out, I believe, from the scriptures, but he had this, this relationship with the Lord in his heart or from his heart, and when it, he says, I have set the Lord before me, this is not a physical thing, this is a spiritual thing where he takes the Lord and sets him before him, not to ask him this, that, and the other thing, but so that he would see Jesus and, and be set before him, and he would become like him, like Jesus. We walk as Christians, but if you want to boil this whole thing down, you know, render it, like those of you who cook, render it down to what? What's left? You know, what, what's, what's the essence? The, the essence for us has to be that we become like him in some way, or maybe in a lot of ways. And your becoming like him and my becoming like him will be based upon our responses to him, how I see him, uh, how I walk with him when no one's around, uh, when I'm at work, when no one in this church sees, and when certain things come before me or the temptations before me, if I do not have the Lord set before me, then I can be in trouble real quick. So this whole spiritual thing here that, that David's doing, that we should do, I believe is like a safeguard for us. If we really set the Lord before us, then he can really help us. He can do some things with us. Now, in Lamentations, uh, chapter 3, who wrote the book of Lamentations? Jeremiah. Jeremiah. When did he write it? After the fall of uh, Judah or Israel? I'm not sure. I think it's Judah. In verse 24, he says, The Lord is my portion says my soul, therefore I hope in him. You see, so for you and I, the Lord must be our portion. We must want to share with him, share in what he has. And, and of course, that David, you see this not just with one person in the Bible, and you see this particular truth other places where it does not use the same wording, but it's still there. And as you look at some of these things and some of these men, and Jeremiah, I mean, you talk about somebody going through some difficult things in life. Holy moly. 
It's like crazy. Some of the things happened to him. <laughs> Threw him in a pit. You know all that. He's prophesying. He's telling them that it's going to, Judah's going to be destroyed. Country's going to be destroyed. They're, they're not going to listen. They didn't listen to him. And he has to endure all these different things, walking with the Lord. And you see this coming out of his heart. The Lord is my portion. I believe that if the Lord was not his portion, he wouldn't have made it. He would not have made it. It was just too much. It was too much for him. And I like how he says this. The Lord is my portion. He doesn't say with my mouth. He says, says my soul. So there was a, a deep-rooted trust, desire, whatever you want to call it, in his heart for the Lord to be before him, set before him, being the one that I want. And then in, you know, even though Babylon conquered them, Judah, and actually destroyed Jerusalem, Still, even in that, and I love this because the Lord, as I said, is so far above us. Even though God let the judgment come, and even though the Lord brought Babylon in, still God extends his mercy. Look in verse 31. For the Lord will not cast off forever. See, man... They do that. You know, they'll write a person off, that's it, they're done. But I'm telling you, the Lord does not do that. We can do it, but he doesn't do it. For the Lord will not cast off forever. Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. I don't think we realize how merciful God is. Sometimes when I see things that people do, you know, you, you look at what goes on sometimes in the world and some of the things that people do to other people. Uh, you know, we were watching something last night, and it's like, it, it, there's a Christian agency that has people out, and they have a, a, a system that they have where they, they take these young girls in these countries that are being brought into sex slave, you know, sex slave trafficking, and, and they... they take them out of that. And the number of women, young girls trapped in that worldwide is crazy. Some of the things they, that they, they were saying, the number of people, young, they, some of the girls looked like they were 10. Caught up in this, not by their choice. They were kidnapped or whatever. And they're trying to take them out, take them out one at a time. And they're, they're reaching reaching these people. And, and you see some things like that, and, you know, it, it's just some horrendous things that go on. And to bring that down on a more close level for us, maybe there's some people that you know uh, or somebody in your neighborhood that you see, somebody at work, and you see some things in their life that are terrible, things that they do. To others. And we immediately want to take them and push them aside and say, you know, 
I would like to call, call fire down from heaven upon your head. Well, God doesn't do that. And in his mercy and in his long-suffering at times, he's able to reach some. He's able to reach some. Have you ever heard of Lee Strobel? He was a man who was, he, he worked for a, um, I think it was a, a he was a, um, like an investigative reporter. I think it was in Chicago. I'm not positive if that was where he was. But he was an atheist. His wife was an atheist. And everything they did was to, they had a young child, girl. They wanted to keep her away from any influence of religion. To make a long story short, they're in this restaurant. And, and then of course, people wrote him off that were Christians, some of them. Right? You know, God should just strike him dead. His influence is negative. So he's in a restaurant, him, his wife, and child, and they finish their meal, and the child wants something for dessert. And there was a machine there that she could get candy, so she wanted candy. So he gave her the money she could ever get candy, sticks it in her mouth, and it's about this big, and it rolls back and sticks in her throat. And so she falls down on the restaurant floor, and she's choking to death, and he's panicking, and his wife's panicking, and his black lady walks over and grabs this little girl and says, I'm a nurse, throws her up over her, her lap and hits her a certain way a couple times and the thing pops out. And <laughs> the, the wife says to her, you know, thank you, you were here, thank you. She says, my husband and I are Christians and we were going to eat somewhere else, but the Lord told us to come here tonight. And that impacted this woman so much that she had to go over this woman, not, not sneak, she, she snuck out because her husband would never approve it, and talk to this woman. She became a Christian. So the guy worked with another fellow who was a Christian, and he asked him, what would you call the bedrock of Christianity? So the guy says, well, the resurrection. He says, well, I'm going to set out to disprove the resurrection. And he, he goes through all these different things. He, he interviews Christians, he interviews archaeologists, he interviews people in the secular uh, realm, and he, he goes through this whole thing all to disprove the, disprove the resurrection to keep his wife, to get his wife back, to disprove her religion. And he did this for months and months. And at the very end, he comes to the point where he says, I cannot. There's just too much evidence from too many different sources because he's an investigative reporter. And he, he comes to the Lord. He prays with his wife. Now, most people would have written his family off because they were atheists, because of how they were toward people. But the mercies of God are far beyond what we know. I mean, for... For me to be merciful, it has to be a work of the Spirit in my life. I mean, I've had certain things happen to me at work and elsewhere, and I found that the Lord had put something in me I didn't even really realize. I know how I would have re reacted before, years past, to the person and to the situation, what they did. But it was no longer in me. And, you know... We need to get past certain things, but I don't think we can 
unless the Lord does something in us to bring us maybe, you know, to an area like, like we're, the story I was telling you, where these, some of the people, the one lady was very merciful to them, even though they were atheists. You could see it. You know, and, and she was instrumental in their salvation. Now, I'm not saying you condone sin, but I'm saying that, you know, we can have mercy toward people like the Lord does. So he says here, verse 32, though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. And I like that. Uh, in Psalm 73, it says this, of two different translations. Uh, my flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever, forever. And in, in New Living Translations, my health may fail and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. So you can see the psalmist had something. And we really won't know how much we have until, you know, there's a shaking in our life. Until something happens. Maybe to someone we love. I remember whenever, you know, Linda was in an accident. It's like, or when I was in an accident, how she was, you know, oh my goodness. And the car was totaled. You know, and, and you think, or when, whenever we were home and, and Colette flipped her car up the street, it's like, oh my God, what happened, you know? You, you don't know how you're going to react sometimes to things until it's there, you know, until something is right there upon you. And listen, things will come upon us. And then we will find out who is our portion. We'll find out who is our refuge. We'll find out who is our strength. And, and maybe, maybe we'll do okay, maybe we won't. But then now we need to, to put the Lord or set the Lord before us always. Psalm 146. Now, in my Bible, it doesn't say who wrote this psalm. I mean, it could be David, and they didn't, maybe they didn't know, I don't know. Or it could be someone unknown. But it says in verse 1, Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. You see this a lot in the psalms where the individual is saying something, and then they put this, O my soul. That's just not something that you just throw in the sentence. There is a depth here within, and something is coming out from that. It's not just something that's, that comes out of the lips. While I live, I will praise the Lord. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Do not put your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help in men. His spirit departs. He returns to the earth. In that very day, his plans perish. Happy is he, excuse me, happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps truth forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, uh, the Lord gives freedom to the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the stranger. You see, as you're going on here in this psalm, 
that the Lord here is mentioned, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. And the psalmist here sees the Lord in various ways. He sees him with his heart in various ways. The Lord watches over the strangers. He relieves the fatherless and widow. But the way of the wicked he turns upside down. The Lord shall reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations praise the Lord. So when I read something like this, I see this individual who I do not know has a relationship. And I can see that it, at least at this particular time that this is written, he is looking unto Jesus. He's looking unto the Lord in his life. And our successful maneuvering in life you know, must come from a source other than ourselves. It must. No, I don't want to depend on myself because I'll fail. And in Isaiah, very familiar portion of Scripture, Isaiah 6, and we know this chapter. Well, let's just read a couple verses. Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe or garment filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And he cried to, one, uh, to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, as you read this chapter, of course, the focus becomes the Lord. We know this, right? You know, he's high and lifted up, and the train of his garment fills the temple. The focus is the Lord. But it's interesting that God, even as high and lifted up as he is, is interested in, and I'm reading this, I'm seeing this, he's interested in Isaiah, and he's interested in the people. Because he says, who will go for us? And he knows that's an appeal to the heart of Isaiah. And the reason why he wants him to answer the appeal is because he's, he's interested in the people. So even though it centers around the throne of God and, and the Lord being high and lifted up, still you see the interest in Isaiah and you see God's interest in the people. And that's the way it is. He, he's interested in you and I. He's interested in other Christians. You know, I try when I am out and about and I meet other people, other Christians, who for sure think different than, than I do, um, function different than I do, and I, I try not to criticize or to think less of them, because I understand that they may not see some things that I do, and maybe the Lord hasn't done certain things in their life yet. So I, I teach up at Newcastle, and 
And sometimes I see certain things with the people, and that's something that for me is long past, long out of the picture. But I, I can't, I can't be critical of them. I can't say, well, you know, because they aren't like this, they don't do what I think they should do. That I'm going to criticize them. No. My call is to minister the gospel, to teach them. And when I first came into the church years ago, I, I had, my thinking on various things was quite away from certain, where, where it is now. And it took time for the Lord to take me from where I was to bring me into a different place. So, you know, thank the Lord that I wasn't criticized for my lack of understanding. And when Charles Hahn came down, he didn't criticize. And I'm sure he saw where I was. I know he did. And it was extremely difficult for me. But yet the Lord wanted to me, for me to, to transition out of certain things and into something else. And so I look at some of these people, and in my heart, I have a desire for them, and in my heart, I have mercy for them where they are, because I, I understand some things, and I see where they are. Not that they're in sin, but, you know, some, some of the things that go on, you just see them. And, and it's, it's, it has to be a work of God. It has to be a work of the Spirit, you know, to, to bring them, to, to bring them on. If I, if I say certain things, I know that this is what's going to happen. They're turning off what I say. So I ask the Lord, give me wisdom to say certain things, to draw them, and show me what not to say, because I, I want... The best for these people, I want to see them drawn to the Lord. Now, I'm not going to compromise the truth of the, of the scriptures, no. But I will give them grace where they are. And um, there's one individual who came up to me and said some things. and I mean, it, was, I mean, it wasn't bad, but it's just that I could see where he was. But still, he has a heart. He wants to move on. He wants to know the Lord more. And that's what we need. You know, that's what I'm looking for, for them. So I saw the Lord. I like Isaiah says, I, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Now, in, in closing, last scripture in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 6, you know, do we have a, a view of the Lord where he is far, far beyond? Now, I know we have a, a close relationship. We can have a close relationship. But, I mean, do you see him high and lifted up? Do you see him above? Do, do you see certain things in him that you don't, maybe we don't have, you don't have yet? Do you desire certain things that the Lord, you see in Jesus? And Paul says this to Timothy, and, you know, Paul just says things, and it doesn't explain them, but when you read this, though I read it, I see something beyond. In verse 16, speaking of Jesus, who alone has immortality, 
dwelling in approachable light, or that actually means inhabiting, inhabiting it. Unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. So there's, there's a part of the Lord that is just, it's shrouded. We, we don't see it. And I, I believe we don't need to see it. As long as in our heart we know that He is high and lifted up. He, he's, he's higher. And no matter what, what the Lord has done in our life, you know, He's higher. We can, we can move on further. Whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. So for us, I hope that we will have the basic thing moving in our life, that we would see Jesus. That we would see Jesus. That he would be set before us. That we would set him before us as an example that we would become, really become like him.